0: Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork London. I'm Sarah Koshansky, and this week I'm joined by my co-host, Deloitte partner, Nigel Walsh. How are you, Nigel?
1: I am fantastic, as always.
0: (laughs) That's excellent to hear. So, this week's show will focus on the changing business models in the vehicle insurance industry. Vehicle insurance, both personal and commercial, makes billions every year for traditional insurers. It's also a huge sector that's ripe for disruption. This is what we want to pick apart today to find out what the drivers are for that disruption and what makes the difference for customers.
1: In addition to that, we'll bring you a fantastic interview from Christopher Sharp, CEO of Kinsu.
0: But before we get into that, we're joined by some fantastic guests today. Joining me is Freddie McNamara, CEO of Cover, Toby Talpitz, CEO and founder of Laca, and David Williams, technical director of AXA. So, we're going to jump straight into it, and I'm going to ask David to start us off with a quick summary of where the vehicle insurance industry is right now.
2: Yeah, well, it's a massive market. I think that's the big thing, and that's why there's so much uh, interest. So, uh, UK annual written premiums are just shy of £12 billion, and so clearly that's enough to get people excited. But if you look globally, it's in excess of $600 million. So when people think of you know opportunities for you know, disruption and change or just opportunities to earn some cash, they see a very big market. In the UK, it's, it's very traditional. It's mandated. People have to buy it. It's, it's the law. And that doesn't make it easy to uh, make it sort of warm and fuzzy. So people aren't buying motor insurance because of the quality of the product or the service generally. Um, Most business is transacted via um, cost comparison sites, price comparison websites, that sort of thing. Um, Even the broker business, most of it is still done that way. Um, And that sort of creates a bit of a, a perfect storm in terms of it's the easy way to get to you know, to an absolute price focused model and the easy way to remove any potential margin so when you were talking about lots of people making billions of pounds uh, the UK insurance Uh, Motor market is making money this year, but it's probably the first time in about 14 years. I think over the last 16, there's only been two years where the motor insurance itself has made any money. So the interesting bits, I suppose, are the things that insurers are having to do. You know, add-ons, additional covers and, you know, um, sometimes some, some difficult practices with additional fees and things like that just to be able to make a living. So big old market, very traditional Grudge purchase um and right for change. Commodity? Uh yeah, absolutely a commodity. Um and that's a bit sad because, you know, it it, it is so big, it could be the sort of jewel in the crown, but
1: because it's um so focused on price, it's a a
2: bit of a a race to the bottom,
1: I'm afraid. So I think Toby and Freddie respectively, you guys have attacked it from different angles in terms of disruption. Toby, I guess you from the claim side, Freddie from a completely different user experience and actually need as opposed to our our traditional annual policies. What's your take on this?
3: Coming from four to two wheels um, first. So LACA is offering straightforward cycling insurance powered by the community and with a few twists. What we mean by that is we change the billing model in insurance charging in arrears, not at the beginning of the month any longer. We have the hypothesis that charging premiums up front for the insurer is very, very comfortable, but it's a bad deal for the customer having to wait for a service down the line when they have a claim. David smiling away here in the background, just for just for those that are listening away.: Exactly. So um, we believe there is scope now um, with new tools in the toolbox like an FCA sandbox and more open insurers to work with, um, to try something different here. So um, LaCA has launched its first product cover for high-value bicycles for theft damage and loss earlier this year. And again, we are charging in arrears at the end of the month based on the actual cost of claims. So with that, we don't need to look into our crystal ball um, estimating the claims. We wait until the end of the month, add up all claims, add a fee for our services, and split the bill equally across all the people in the pool. Now, um, we are coming from the affinity side of things. Cycling is a very, very strong informal bond. Um, In the UK, it's growing. People are very, very passionate about their items. And um, that's what we're going to tackle first.
0: So that's actually what's driving your business and your business model is this growth in, in the cycling industry, if you like. So, you know, years ago, there was a very small group of people who had very expensive bikes, and now more and more people are, are you know, purchasing those high-end vehicles. So presumably, that's a, a customer behavior that's driving your business model as well.
3: Behavior is the right buzzword. So we believe <laughs> that um, underwriting by the postcode is not the right thing to do, at least in certain products. We believe it's all coming down to the behavior of the individual person behind that. So you can live in a very bad area, but take super care of your bike, take it to your apartment, lock it very well, you should pay less than someone living in a good postcode, never locking the bike. So, yes, um, I think just the behavior for high value bikes goes hand in hand with adjusted behavior, so to speak.
0: And, uh, and Freddie, so obviously you have, you do four wheel vehicles, exclusively private cars. Is that correct? Sort of privately owned cars, which talk us through your business model a little bit.
4: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we have two core products uh, and beneath them we have actually sub products beneath them. So the first product we have is cover short term and it allows you to buy as little as an hour of insurance to drive a car that you don't actually own. Uh, So you can actually buy one hour to 28 days of insurance. And with that product, you can actually buy it if you are a private car, if you're a taxi, if you want to borrow somebody else's van, and if you're a learner driver as well. So it actually covers quite a broad spectrum. Each one of those markets, it's motor, so it's big. Each one of those markets is easily £100 million uh, in total gross written premium. And they're quite new since last time you've been on, right? They're the new products you've added to the portfolio? Yes, Fantastic. And then the second product we offer is a subscription product that allows you to uh, pay less if you drive less. So, if you own a car and you don't drive it as often, you can buy a subscription from us that uh, rolls over every 28 days that covers your car to be insured on the side of the road. Okay. And then, when you want to drive it, all you have to do is open the app and buy a couple of hours of comprehensive driving insurance.
0: So again, what's interesting that both of you have mentioned is that customer behavior. So I'm guessing, Freddie, from your perspective, these models are adapting to the fact that people don't, not many people, well, lots of people do, but there are also lots of people who do not own a car and drive every day. They borrow at weekends, they borrow somebody else's car, you know, certain people who live in cities, they want a different model. Um, Would you say that it's customer behavior driving you know the product you're offering as well
4: absolutely we spot what i spotted uh, about four years ago that um, insurance just hadn't kept up with the changing customer behaviors Uh, and actually the original product an hour of car insurance to borrow a friend's car was was a problem that i felt acutely i wasn't able to borrow my friend's car he just didn't want you to drive it did he really let's be let's be honest i spent 2 years building an entire insurance company in order to be able to borrow my friend's car <laughs> has he let you borrow it now he Jeez. he is not
0: was it cheaper and easier to do that than to buy
4: it certainly yeah. was so all i wanted to do was drive that car for a couple of hours you know share, share a long trip or you know uh, borrow it to go to the supermarket and there was no easy and quick way to do that i had to go online and you know buy a day or a week of insurance or i had to ring up his insurance company and uh, and we realized that there's an enormous industry in the UK which is like just temporary car insurance one day to 28 days and we realized that if we just sell an hour of car insurance that would that would, in the, in the original Clayton Christensen definition, be disruptive to that market because, uh, because we're going in and selling a, a shorter version, a smaller version that actually effectively undercuts the... Uh, but it's friction-free as well, so it takes out the pain point of logging on, going to someone, etc., etc. et cetera. There's a differentiation between just building a better mousetrap and actually building a disruptive product. And disruptive angle ca- comes from being able to sell in these very, very short periods. And we, we've done that by being on mobile. So you can't buy uh, insurance from Cover online. You You have to download the app, and in the process of doing that, you actually go through a huge number of validations. We take your location, we take a selfie, we take a picture of your driving license, and we check that all with humans. And that means that we can get a much stronger idea of who you are and what you're doing. And so we're then able to sell you an hour of car insurance when before we wouldn't have known what was going on and we wouldn't have had any recourse if you, for example, were insuring yourself after the fact. The app downloads interesting in
1: itself, actually, because I often speak to insurance organisations about customers will never want to download an app in the first place or at point of claim, but you're actually insisting they have not at the outset, right? How are you
4: finding that? I think persuading people to download an app in order to claim is, uh, is probably going to be a hard sell, but when we can demonstrate to our customers what benefit they have from having the app on their phone they actually buy in pretty quickly,
0: And I, and I would say as well, I'm, I actually use this product. I would say that it's because if you use, if you are like Freddie and like myself, you borrow people's cars, other people's cars on a regular basis or would like to, having the app, you just turn on, hit the button and turn off. It's a very different prospect to say, you know, for example, David Axer having an app that you download, you know, to to occasionally use, maybe once every two or three years. Like if you're if you're using a car, you know, once a month or once every six months, then you're more likely to hold on to the app.
2: I, th- I think there's lots of uh, changes that are making these things more disruptive than uh, you know somebody's been in insurance for a long time might think, because y- you've always been able to get short-term covers, um, but that frictional element is, is meant to, it's ridiculously expensive. So, you know, one of the reasons why they wouldn't have gone down to hours previously is because they just couldn't have justified it. So weeks, twenty eight days, things like that. Um but that technology, being able to do it exactly when you want to do it. I also think people are more getting into apps. I think that resistance to download apps is maybe a couple of years out of date. I think people accept it now as long as they get benefit. And like you say, if they're going to regularly use it. I mean, we launched an app in, I think, 2008 for you to make claims. We're really proud of it. But nobody ever used it because by the time they had a claim, they'd forgotten they'd installed it.
0: (laughs) Or they deleted it because it was taking up space. And what about, you know, for example, Toby, so we're talking about there the speed of access, you know, the ability to just turn on and turn off when you want. I mean, is this kind of... um, speed of getting insurance important to your model as well is it kind of being able to do it quickly does that serve a customer need or is actually because what you offer is slightly different it's it's less important to be able to do it you know as quickly as possible
3: for us it's less, of, less about um on demand so people want to be covered for the full season um we have some people saying i want to have cover only on a sunday afternoon ride out <laughs> um we believe people are much better off to have it switched on all the time if the service is good enough and the price low enough um Imagine you're out on the ride right and you forgot to switch it on. What happens then? Of course, there are all sorts of cool things like geo-tracking and whatnot else to activate that. For us, it's um, partially the business model itself. But I think there's also, I guess, taking a step back. When we came across LACA, um, the, the need was really, in my mind, that there's a disincentive for insurers versus um, what the customer wants to see. And that culminated into the, a point um, just outside of this office here in <laughs> Commercial Street. There was an ad online by one insurer. And they were saying, last year we settled 99.5% of all motor claims. And it really struck me that you have to advertise that you're doing your job effectively. Um, BMW doesn't go out saying, my car's work. And who is paying for that? Is it the customer? Is it the shareholder? And my hunch, it's the the former. But isn't this an education issue about the industry again? Because
1: everyone's perception is that if you listen to Daniel Schreiber talk about or the Urban Dictionary of Insurance, it goes back to, we're taking your money and not there to pay, which I fundamentally disagree with. I think we are as an organization uh, as an industry sorry here to help settle people's claims just to ask Liz Lumley after uh, her current challenges which I believe are being sorted out um, but fundamentally aren't we sorting an educational perception industry or I- issue with the industry?
3: It is educational for sure absolutely and I think the perception comes from the one friend over two corners who had that experience and um, I feel when we looked spent a lot of time looking into policy specifically for the cycling products so Um, If you cover your bike with home insurance, you have a high access that won't leave you with anything when you have a claim. We came across um, policies where you are only covered in a 5 miles radius from home only when you ride out. So you can only go in a circle, which doesn't make much sense either. So. I think there's an educational piece on the one end. I didn't content. know that. Five miles out, but uh, yeah, it's, it's true. we can show that policy. So yeah, it's
1: it won't be a mainstream product, surely. That sounds far too
2: restrictive. Oh. But
1: I quite like it though. Five miles, to be fair. I've done my exercise for the day. Five miles, <laughs> <from> Bosch home. <laughs> didn't want to go any further. not insured. You get a when push they're...
3: notification when you go past <laughs> the line. Yeah. But I think there's education on one side and then supply on the other side, and I think we have some to meet somewhere in the middle.
0: So interestingly, what you've kind of talked about today is, is quite personalised. Uh, because you, you both, you've you mentioned there a couple of policies that would be no use to anybody because they're, they're too general so either five miles or it doesn't insure you when you're outside your house or anything like that um, so you, what your product you're offering is, is quite specific quite personalised whilst we can all see the benefits of that are there any negative connotations to taking it down this highly personalised route um, certainly and this is a question for the wider group as well like when you think about some of the rules that have come in about you know gender okay all of a sudden you can't you know when you're insuring cars no longer can you just take somebody's gender into account um are they going, are we going to run into problems with these personalized products, or
3: um, insurance? After all, is a large risk um, product or large risk pool product. So you need to have a certain amount of people to make it work, one way or the other, or need to cross subsidize. <laughs> um, we can certainly segment further from um, bikes to mountain bikes, road bikes, and e-bikes. And at some point, we come to a point where it's too narrow, too little. We might need to run run into some problems. But um, I think personalization is good. It offers flexibility. It offers alternatives. Um, just need to hold its weight. So
1: Are these guys attacking your market, David, bit by bit by bit, taking off slices of a of things that traditional insurers, and I'm not saying actually are traditional insurer because you're quite progressive some of the things that you're doing right now, but the traditional market, are people taking away bits of what you can't get to quickly enough? I, I think it's less taking away stuff we've already got, but more
2: capturing the, the sort of customers of the future. So yeah, you know, whether you're looking at you know, people just insuring their bike,
1: yeah. in the past,
2: people would have an annual household policy. But a lot of people, particularly in larger cities, are just deciding they don't want to. They only want to insure specific items. So, so that's not people... That that we currently have moving across, it's, it's the younger generation. I think also when you're talking about um, borrowing people's vehicles, you know, pretty much every policy in the UK includes a free of charge driving other cars extension. So you can get into somebody else's car and drive it. However, there's an awful lot of people, an increasing number of people who don't have cars? So if they don't have a car, they don't have that driving other cars extension. Yeah, the carless driver, if we call it. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, there, there's all sorts of different policies available. But I think if you, you know, if you don't want to own a car, you don't want the expense of a higher car, but you want to you know, make sure that the one that you're borrowing is fully covered, then you know, these these products fill a gap. So it's not taking stuff away; yeah. it's
1: bringing insurance, I would say, to people that we wouldn't otherwise have. But insured. You, you've just come back to education again, and people, or not even education awareness. I wasn't aware of the five-mile rule that I can't cycle for more than five miles. Bonus wasn't aware of the um, driving other. I would,
4: uh, I would actually refute that 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 uh, that really exists anymore. Um, the commoditization of the motor insurance market has meant that every single additional extra has been stripped out of the uh, of the to reduce the cost of the, yeah to reduce the, t- the cost and uh, and what what you also don't know with that driving other cars policy is that yeah sure you can drive it legally but you're third party insured if you yes. crash it yeah. you have to buy your friend a new car
0: and doesn't that doesn't that tie into as well the kind of insurance when you when you see all these um, hire a car and it's only 9 pounds a day or something you can hire a car for 9 pounds a day but when you try and add exactly. the insurance onto yeah. it yeah. Yeah. it's yeah. And that's the same thing, right? That's that stripping out those extras. So, um, I don't know, I completely agree. I think it's it's filling a need that didn't exist previously.
4: To your personalisation point, though, you you asked whether or not personalisation was a potentially negative effect. Um, I would say absolutely. And in my experience, the EU coming in and banning the differentiation between men and women uh, just pushed that same rating into different factors. There were more proxies for sex rather than actually sex itself. Calling it out directly. So if you're going to uh, drive a, a pink Fiat Punto, it's it's quite Leave likely that your insurance ready. your insurance policy will be significantly cheaper. Well, what I should
2: point out that that you're know, using any proxies is also illegal and that the insurance industry is being regularly challenged on that. So, And we've found, for instance, that 90% of Fit 500s, you know, a little car I, I think looks lovely, but 90% of them are driven by women, and therefore we have to be really careful. So you cannot, we should not give people the impression that you can use any proxy. So right, I'm not going to rate on sex, but people called Wendy. Uh, we're going to give them a discount. You know, that's, that's not allowed. Pink cars, nurses, certain occupations... Maybe some insurers are selling a bit close to the edge, but the the rules are very clear at this point uh, that you're not allowed to do that. That said, the only decent thing I can think that might come out of Brexit is if we can actually reverse that rule and you know allow younger females to only pay premiums that reflect the risks that they present, because so they're much better risks, and we're not allowed
1: to offer them cheaper premiums. So they're disadvantaged as a result of it.
0: Oh, absolutely. And and as a as a younger female driver <coughs> who has an insurance had an insurance policy that kind of quadrupled. I can absolutely attest to that. But to go back to the point about personalization and what you were saying there, David, in terms of what's legal and what's not. How about when we talk about putting um, GoPros on uh, bicycle helmets or on dashboard cameras? Because that is sort of telematics personalization. You know, where do you cross the line with that? You know, if you start saying, okay, so Toby goes fine. If you uh, have a GoPro uh, on your helmet and you give me that feed, I will off you cheaper insurance because you don't jump red lights or you know Freddie says if you're the car you're-
1: or they mandate it importantly so if oh, i yeah, mandate right. you
4: have a dash cam so the aim there is actually not to with the cameras is not to make you drive more safely it's actually to be able to uh, determine liability really easily in in the case of an accident because lots of accidents happen where it's actually very difficult to piece together
0: unless the cctv who was at fault yep, yeah. and
4: if if both drivers are saying that the other driver did something else then they have to settle 50 50 But if you have irrefutable proof from a dash cam, your customer might be able to uh Where well, it's legal because some countries it's it's not legal,
2: right? Uh, that's really strange. In Aust- Austria, for instance, on a commercial vehicle you're not allowed to have a dash cam because you've that got to where well, well, you've got to request permission from any individual before <laughs> filming them, apparently. So it's nonsense. But if you look in the UK, there are an awful lot of products, commercial motor products, where you will get a discount or it will be mandated that you will need some form of dash cam. You know, pretty much any bus coach, public service vehicle will have cameras fitted and just, they, they save a fortune.
1: It's just evolution of technology. Years ago it was tracker devices and then, then it was sat now has been tucked into your glove box rather than left on display and now the next evolution of technology you add on quite quickly is the, the dash cam and after that you've got the heads up displays and people like Nato and all those sorts of guys that do really cool but we things. need we
2: need to understand the impact that these things are having because I love technology, love gadgets as you know but it's not all good. So keyless entry systems, yeah. if you look at theft statistics on... On motor vehicles in the UK. They've been dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping and now all of a sudden they're going back up because it is so easy to get something which will clone a key or just override something and we're seeing a, and a certain vehicles,
1: were, vehicles. were really at risk. I think it was a whole spate of Range Rovers at one point. They were in the news on the BBC about you know, 30 Range Rovers in Brighton one night were, were targeted and, and off they went. Yeah.
4: I'm not sure many people are crying over the Range Rovers. <laughs> but serious savings is, uh, are given to taxi drivers who are working all day, every day on the roads. They have a camera in the car, they have an ABD. They they're a safe driver. They should be able to save on the basis that it was the other guy's fault and they can prove it.
0: What about you, Toby? Is that something you'd look into, like using that kind of data? Because a lot of the serious cyclists out there, I've seen them, <laughs> have cameras all over the place.
3: It is the cameras, it's other data. I think there's a saying, if it's not tracked on Strava, a cycling platform it never happened. doesn't <laughs> count. It does not count. I can test to that. So I think it's really good data to see how people behave, how often they go for a ride, um, at what, what the pace, in what area and what not else. And people really have a desire to be grouped with similar people, people like me, the person who goes out on a 6 a.m. Sunday morning ride, right? and you should people group accordingly um, versus the computer for instance. And I think a lot of incentives there. Um, certainly, um, dash camps is phenomenal for cyclists as well because of the, the clash car versus bicycle. I don't want to get into that now, but um, it's um, making use of various gadgets and tools to collect data and price accordingly. I think um, it helps a lot.
1: So could we could we see in the future, I've long been a fan of what you guys are up to, I remember our first conversation probably two years ago when you were leaving your last show and saying, am I mad? I, said, I think I definitely said you were mad going to start an insurance company, uh, but here you are, successful partnership with Zurich and everything else. Do you see this driving into motor claims going forward and re-educating the market as to how things could be using your business model?
3: Yes and no. The no is because we have no immediate interest in the motor insurance sector just because of the big liability component. I feel like that is where you need a balance sheet, and rightfully so. We have the short tail risk to begin with, and we clear the tab every month. And we are positioning ourselves more on the lifestyle um, side of things. So sports instrument, sports equipment, music instruments, small planes, light boats and what not else. All of these things suit us very well. By extension, it's less sexy to sell those things, but you could go into travel, dental, personal accident. Um, the liability component is what probably makes insurance or more insurance so expensive and is um, a different beast to manage.
0: Just to take this on a slightly different direction what I'd be really interested in hearing about from you Toby is um, your experiences in the RegTech sandbox because if we're talking about these different models we're talking about these drivers of disruption you are an InsurTech who's been through the the UK regulator the FCA's um, sandbox which is um, for those people who don't know designed to allow companies that are not yet licensed to experiment with their business models and talk to people who are in the know and decide you know what license they may need to apply for so you know what we've decided today is that there is change there is disruption there's behavioral change you know is it something you would advise other people who are looking to capitalize on that to do was it a good experience
3: i would strongly encourage everyone to apply for the sandbox and even if it's just for having the regulator on speed dial is just phenomenal i should probably correct one statement that um, yes we got into the sandbox without a license but we are regulated as any other um, insurance intermediary. We had to go to the full MTA licensing process, um, maybe with a slightly more resources on their side. But we had to go through the hoops. Um, so there is no waiving any rules or, or shortcuts, so to speak. Put a warm, gentle hand around the back to make sure you get through. Okay, possibly.
1: Okay,
0: it's more about giving you advice. Okay, then in how to apply. How
3: it really served us well was when we entered. We had a very bold vision, saying our business model, paying in arrears, is not insurance. It's consumer finance. We are managing cash flows, have credit risk, not underwriting risk any longer. So why not trying it as a consumer finance company? Our application read very, very funny. We actually um, suggested to apply for a loan when you have a claim and all of these things. And um, the verdict was, listen, that is some big of a stretch. Why don't you try it first as an insurance intermediary? And we did so. It took us probably a few weeks to figure that out. But if we would have done it without the FCA, that would have cost us probably half a year or longer. And that kills a young startup that is bootstrapping. So um, that was the first starting point to figure out who we are, what we are, how we can pull this off. The second piece is, um, as a startup, convincing a Carrier to work with you is not a trivial task. Carriers, and I'm trying to, to find the right words here. Um, we're told to be very diligent um, by the regulator for a very long time, and that is that results in less appetite in innovation for the for the fear of a fine.
0: Risk averse, by any chance?
3: <laughs> not not because they want to, because. They had bad experiences in the past. And, if and
1: they have a brand to protect, right? Companies exactly. like AXA, like Zurich, have spent decades or centuries building
3: brands. If you do something wrong, we'll fine you, was the sentiment. We had to overcome, and it's now opening up, and I think both sides want to do so, and I think it's, again, an educational topic. Yeah. Um, one silly example I, I love sharing is, um, apparently we are one of the few, or if not the first, intermediary without a phone line, a landline. <laughs> and fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie, I think, is also chiming in here. It's raining, but we, at least we were told um, to, that that doesn't work. At least we're the first one working with Zurich doesn't have a, a landline. And um, to get the sign-off um, to do so um, is, is, uh, it took ages. Uh, we don't have a landline either. The first one with Zurich, I corrected myself. <laughs> <laughs> but it's silly stuff like that, right? It's actually, it should be trivial. It's not because it's never been done before. What does the FCA think of me? And I think um, we're now working towards a trend, everyone opening up and I think more innovation to come.
4: Hopefully. So we, we had exactly the same battle and in two weeks' time, we will actually have instant in-app support within one minute, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is far in excess of any support you can get via a landline to a traditional insurance company but it was still an enormous battle with the with the FCA. What, to have the 24 by 7 support? No, to not have a landline, to have everything yeah. done by uh, instant message.
0: So, you know, we, we've talked about quite a lot of changes here. Is there anything, David, that we haven't covered that you think might be impacting this? So we've sort of talked about the future. It looks positive. It looks like, you know, the FCA are being supportive of new models and, you know, there's plenty driving that change. Is there anything that we've missed here?
2: Uh, well, I, I think it's positive for new, new models. I don't think it's positive for conventional motor insurance. I think, you know, we drift into the realms of ride sharing mobility as a service driverless cars uh, and that is is going to take away the vast majority of the conventional motor insurance market that we currently have fortunately these chaps are in different segments that I think will actually thrive there and um, the other aspect I think we need to get our heads around is so we know about the automated electric vehicle bill but the law commission are just embarking on a three-year program which is going to bring lots of changes which will need to be reflected in insurance products or will have an impact on on what we do a a daft example so if you've got let's call it a robot car it's not going to be stopping to report an accident is it you know (laughs) so are you going to have two different sets of rules people don't think so so effectively the rules that apply to human drivers May be rewritten so that we can have one consistent set of rules. And I think we need to be make sh- making sure that we, we're influencing that and also making sure our products keep up to date because there is going to be, I think we are about, at the start of probably the biggest change in motor insurance that we've ever I mean, seen.
1: mean if we go back to your recent intended acquisition of XR Cut, and I think you were even in the announcement, you talked about the shift of risk moving from personal to commercial uh, in the public press releases, which I think is great. What's the transition states? Because you're, of course, one of the leading authorities in this full stop here in the UK. You're always active on um, in all the channels that you talk about. What, what are the transition states as we go through from personal-driven today through to share the autonomy in the future but all that's not happening overnight that's a good 10 12 15 years out and that's the great
2: thing for us because you know it acts obviously we write lots of products so if we stop writing personal motor we write a lot of commercial motor we can move our staff our capital into you know household insurance or you know working with these chaps maybe um so it's not going to happen overnight but it is going to happen so i think if you look 20 years from now um the market will be completely and absolutely different so what we need to be doing is learning about it and we're involved in five driverless car consortia they're funded by the government um seems a bit daft because it's not getting a lot of insurance product out there but we're understanding the challenges and the technology and that's what i think everybody
4: needs to be doing
0: sorry freddie you had a point there as well on the- so
4: interestingly as autonomous cars start sharing the road with uh, manually driven cars uh, you're you're going to start to have a situation where every road is 3d mapped uh in real time and that data will be stored uh, and so the liability, uh, you, you won't have an autonomous car stopping to report an accident. Every single autonomous car in the area will provide their 3D map of what happened when, exactly who did what, and that will be downloaded later and used to manage the claim.
2: As long as the motor manufacturers let us have that data, and that's the current big battle we're having. But, yeah, the government are alive. To-
1: isn't GDPR going to address all that issue? Uh, but GDPR is about
2: privacy, isn't it, really? So if you're in the wrong, are you going to want your data shared? There's going to be need to be some regulation around it, and the government are alive to that. Uh, but currently, particularly the German motor manufacturers are using their privacy laws to suggest that uh, GDPR actually should make it more difficult for us and others to get access to that data.
0: Cool. Well, we um, have had an excellent discussion here today. Um, That wraps up our round table. So thank you so much to everyone for joining us. Um, Where can our listeners find out more about you? Do you guys have websites, Twitter handles, email addresses, uh, landlines? Apparently not. Um, Freddie, how about you?
4: Uh, If you're looking for hourly car insurance to borrow a friend's car, you can go to www.cover.com, which is spelled C-
3: Brilliant. Uh, Toby? If you're an avid cyclist or have friends who cycle, please visit laka.co.uk or lakahq and all the above the social media handles.
0: Brilliant. And David?
2: Uh, my ramblings are on Twitter on at AXA David W.
0: And Nigel?
1: I'm Nigel Walsh on Twitter.
0: And you can find me at Sarah Kishansky on Twitter. Next up, we bring you a fantastic interview with Christopher Sharp, CEO of Kinsu. Let's hear from him now. Welcome to Insure Tech Insider. I'm Sarah Kishansky, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Christopher Sharp, CEO of Kinzu. Welcome, Christopher. So, could you tell us a little bit about what Kinzo do?
5: Yeah, uh, Kinzo is the sort of fastest and kindest insurance app in the UK. What we do, uh, we have um, some innovative and carefully curated uh, products designed and delivered in a, in a beautiful way. Uh, and backed up with a sort of behaviour and a promise to behave in a in a way that, that people would expect. In those terms, it's uh, we we can at the moment we our products consist of, of phone and gadget insurance, uh, bicycle cover and uh, and contents cover. Um, We're soon to be launching a, a buildings policy, and um, we have a travel cover in the pipeline as well. So our ambition is to sort of ensure all your stuff um, wherever you take it. And at the moment, we've uh, you know we've got the. The small stuff covered, and then the sort of renters' market covered. I think our real innovation is in the products. There's lots of things, uh, lots of things we can improve about insurance today, but the actual products and them being fit for purpose, and people understanding what is and isn't covered, I think is is one of the core misses with the sort of people that we're trying to talk to, and um, and we're trying to put that right by um, giving people what they expect to be covered by um, an insurance policy. Really, I think a lot of the confusion and anxiety that's created by the insurance industry and, and people, well, not necessarily by the insurance industry, but people feel when they when they interact with the insurance industry, is created out of both of those things. Some of it's the communication and uh, the language, and the, the legalese, the double negatives in the, in the policies and stuff. So we've done everything we can to sort of tidy that up and clean that up. But also, it's more about the sort of confusing coverages. If you go on aggregate a site and you tap in your, your details, you will get um, a range of options from, you know, from five pound a month to five hundred pound a month, and that just freaks people out, and, and they don't understand, you know, the differences in the nuances within within that coverage, and, and nor should they. Uh, you know, I don't understand most, you know, most most of it. So we've put together a, a product that we think our customers think should be should be covered, which is at the same time a fabulous claim to fame, but it's not very good marketing A message that your our insurance does what you think it should do <laughs> and, nothing, and nothing else. But in actual fact, I think it's really powerful because a lot of the stories you hear um, from disenfranchised people or people with horror stories about insurance are about misunderstanding what's covered. You know, they lose their shit on a bus and they go to make a claim and there was an out-of-home limit that they weren't aware of or um, they smash their phone um, and they would go to get it repaired, and there's a hundred pound deductible, which they, you know, which removes most of the value of the claim. Or the type of water damage that got their stuff wet will happen to be one of the five different classifications of water damage that is or isn't covered. And people don't care what kind of what kind of water damages their stuff; they care if it's wet, and they want a new one. And that's sort of what we've how we've tried to write our policy that. If your stuff's wet, you'll get a dry one.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it makes perfect sense. So it's kind of it it moves away from that idea of um, a race to the bottom in terms of price. So when people go on those aggregator sites, a lot of the time they just end up going for the cheapest one or certainly, you know, that's been my experience because you don't really understand what the difference is. So, you know, whereas the policies that you write may not be the absolute cheapest one out there, you can actually get what you want, which is a replacement phone if you drop it in the bath or a replacement laptop if you leave it on the bus or, you know, actual real life insurance, if that makes sense.
5: Exactly. and, and we go sort of further than that in, in, in as much as it's flexible. Um, we can, the policy's monthly, you can cancel any time, as most sort of subscription services that we we buy these days are and you sort of expect from, from this kind of service. Um, our, our gadget and, and bike policies sort of live as, as components within our, our contents um, package, so that when you buy a, a contents package from us, you've still got the full full gadget pack um, and you've still got the bike coverage. Whereas in a lot of um, contents covers, then these things are really sub-limited or you know, to the point that they're not worth anything. And you ask with us, lots of our um, customers and, and, and in our research, people have a phone policy um, that they buy from various different places. They'll have a contents cover, they'll have a bike cover, all from separate places, because they're not quite sure what is and isn't covered. And then in addition, they'll have something free from their bank. Or from wherever, and there's this just there's this confusing overlap of sort of nonsense, um, uh, and, and there's no real value it, it, in that. And like I said, it's that it, it leads to anxiety, and we've sort of uh, put the customer at the centre of our process and tried to remove that anxiety and make insurance um, beautiful, make people sort of fall in love with it again and feel um, uh, feel good about it, feel this sort of big cuddle that insurance should feel like. It should feel like you're being looked after. Um, by someone friendly with a big smile and um, a nice warm hug.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think the problem is that so many of these big brands are kind of faceless. So, um, so that you know that's problematic for them is that they struggle to reach out to a, a customer. They struggle to engage with a customer. What would you say your biggest hurdle to success is right now?
5: What's our biggest hurdle to success? I, I mean, it's exposure and um, it's getting our message across, which... in in a very low interest category no one is really interested in insurance evidenced by the fact that so such a huge proportion of our people under 40 you know just don't engage with it at all in some ways you know that's that's our biggest hurdle but it's also our biggest opportunity and we think that by talking to people in a different way with a different attitude and a different product and engaging in in a slightly more normal um way that there's a huge opportunity there and um you know, I think um, I think we're certainly excited about it, and you know, we'll have to work hard to sell insurance. It's really difficult to sell insurance to anybody, and um, we don't have all the answers um, yet by any by any stretch. But we're we're slowly making mistakes and and finding those answers um, week by week.
0: And um, you know, you mentioned there that there's kind of a, a certain amount of apathy, certainly amongst the younger generation when it comes to insurance. Um, do you think that that is one of the major drivers for all this insure tech so we've seen a lot of insure tech activity over the last couple of years you know we we run this podcast because there's so much activity in the space what do you think is you know is that apathy is that new is that is that is the the lack of engagement with insurance because people have less money these days um is you know is technology and expectations of a more personalized service you know what do you think is driving the creation of products like yours and from there the disruption in the insurance industry i mean
5: it's a whole myriad of things i suppose i mean the The real driver to create, and I don't think Kinsu is really insure tech at all. We're we're not really tech. Um, We're certainly insure, but um, our tech is really just a a phone, which isn't, I don't know if you can classify that as a technological breakthrough um, these days, but we're certainly in insurance. But what drove us to look at this um, space was this sort of the disconnect, um, this exact disconnect um, that people think insurance is is not for them. People think insurance is a scam. People think insurance is not daily for money. And that's so far from my sort of understanding of it as this beautiful, um, elegant solution to owning things, to sharing, um, to sharing risk. The sort of it's sort of the essence of the shared economy. It's um, it's one of the only um, business. Uh, opportunities or business lines where where you can really have everybody winning and we're trying to operate in that sweet spot where the customer can can win and have a real true value experience out of something that's pretty darn cheap um we can win in terms of uh, making profit for our shareholders and putting a lot back into the community as as, as through our sort of socially responsible B Corp set up, um, and the insurers that we pass the risk to can, can win as well. And I think that's that's it's not unique to insurance, but it's certainly um, certainly not common in, in other industries. And you know you don't have to look too far past Uber or Deliveroo or Amazon um, or Uniqlo to find out who loses in those situations. There's always a loser, and it tends to be these days, sadly, um, labour the labor market that loses out and insurance doesn't it doesn't have to be like that and um and i think operating in that in, in that sweet spot where everyone wins is a, is a happy place to be and yes yeah, so i think it's that disconnect between between what insurance actually is and how large um chunks of of our population per- perceive it and i think yeah i think that's really it I, but there's an important point in there also that Kinsey certainly don't think insurance is is broken. You know, I see a lot of um, a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of statements about reinventing insurance and um, and uh, and changing the structure. I, I think it's pretty awesome as it as it is. There's certainly problems and issues with it, and it can be improved and repackaged and redressed. But it's um, in its in itself, it's pretty amazing.
0: So it sounds like the, uh, the 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 driving force for change, or that you perceive, is the is the need to co- to meet customers in the middle, to give customers what they want, but also to um, to meet those expectations they have around social good and you know around increasing trust in companies. In terms of what does the future hold for for Kinzu? Then you touched on it a little bit there. It sounds like you're going to expand your product line. Is that your main focus for now, or is your main focus building up a customer base? What's next for you guys?
5: yeah 2000 and um uh, 2018 is that where we are now 2018 yeah this year is about um is about yeah selling selling insurance last year i mean we're pretty young we've only been going just over a year and and last year we um we took a, a seven slide Presentation and turned it into an insurance company in in twelve months, and that was so. We were busy doing that last year. This year, we've got to prove we can sell this shit. and that's what we're busy doing really. Um, so we're, we're we've you know we're, we're partnering with various people uh, who are interested in the, in our product and our vibe, and trying to think about distribution in um, in sort of alternative and different ways. We're working with some charities, uh, working with a bank, we're working with some sort of more traditional sort of retail. Outlets. Um, in order to do that, we're testing all the marketing channels, um, the sort of traditional ones. Um, we are obviously investing in our sort of longer-term growth, uh, referral and community building stuff, and and then just keeping an eye out for you know for other books of business that might um, might float around on the other side of the river over there in the square mile and land in our laps. And we've got you know we've got lots of friends um, who, who you know, wander around those enormous buildings in suits and ties keeping their eyes out for us um see if there's anything that might fit what we're trying to do but yeah just talking to loads of people running around trying to make stuff happen really
0: sounds like you've got plenty to keep you busy um where can our listeners find out more about you uh and where more about Kinzu? do you, you know do you have a website do you have a twitter handle uh, where can they go and, and, and get more insight into what you're up to
5: yeah um it's Kinzu.co.uk. um I think we do have Twitter and the other stuff, but yeah, I don't know what it is. So you'd have to find out off the website, I reckon. There's a nice little video on 30 seconds and it tells you all you need to know about Kinsley.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Christopher. Thank you for joining us today on InsureTech Insider.
5: Thank you. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Appreciate your time.
0: That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you so much to all our guests, Freddie, Toby, David, and Christopher. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com.